Greetings to all of God's people. This is again Mordecai Joseph, and we're continuing today with with uh, Genesis chapter two and verses sixteen and uh, forward. Last time we reached that point, verse sixteen, and then uh, we began with verse seventeen also. And in verse sixteen we read, "And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat." In other words, he was talking also about the tree of life. That too, Adam was commanded to eat. So it was the intention of God that Adam, and later on Eve, will eat of all the trees that were in the garden, and also the tree of life. And if they had done it, obviously life would have been totally different in the past 6,000 years. Anyway, they did not do it. And in verse 17, he continued by saying, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day, as uh, we have explained the uh, Previously, in the day does not necessarily mean uh, the very moment or the very day or the very uh, specific day that you eat it, uh, you're going to be dead, because in verse 4 of chapter 2, we already covered that subject, where it talks about, this is the history of the heavens and the earth, when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. In other words, it's a process of time. In the specific case of in the day that you shall eat and you shall surely die, you can think about the days in terms of the six days of creation, and then the six days of man, that is 6,000 years. A day with God is like a 1,000 years, and a 1,000 years like a day. And if you remember, Adam and Eve, we don't know exactly Eve, but we know about Adam, he lived almost about a 1,000 years. So that was his day. In the first day of his creation, he died. And so that's what he's telling him. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And remember what the Apostle Paul told us about this subject, that when you live a life of sin, when you allow sin to enter into your life, what happens is death is the result. As we read in, uh, we read in Romans chapter 7 and verse 9, where Paul is discussing the issue of sin, transgression, and the righteousness of the law on the other hand, and the Spirit of God that came to him, which opened his eyes to understand what was the ultimate consequences of sin, and that he was not really a very righteous man as he thought, after all. And so he says, I was alive once, without the law, that is, without the knowledge of the spiritual law. He knew the letter of the law. He had much wisdom, much understanding. But the total awareness of the law, and the penalty that it's going to require from him, he did not fully comprehend that. And the depth of sin, he did not fully comprehend that. And the fact that his creator and his maker had to die for that purpose, he did not comprehend that. And so he says, I was alive once. I thought I was doing okay without the law. That is, without the spiritual law. But when the commandment came, in other words, when the, full, the fullness of the spiritual awareness of the commandments came, once he received the spirit, he says, sin revived and I died. And that's, in essence, what God is telling Adam, that you are going to be dead in your sins. Yes, you're going to continue to live a physical life, but spiritually speaking, you're dead person, and unless you have repentance, unless you repent, and you're granted repentance, and you're restored to life, you're going to be dead person. And it's just a matter of physical time, process of time. And that's, in essence, what he's telling him. In the day that you eat of that fruit, you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, it is not good, verse 18, that men should be alone. 
And obviously he didn't have uh, that in mind to begin with. But he's voicing his thinking and he's sort of thinking aloud and Moses is dictating that. And so he says, it is not good that men should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Now the word in Hebrew is ezer kenegdo. Ezer means a helper, lazor, from the verb lazor, to help. And kenegdo means uh, opposite him. But opposite him not in the sense of to oppose him. You have a hand that is on the right, and opposite you have a hand that is on the left. An eye on the right, an eye on the left. What do they do? That balance your vision, that balance your actions, that balance your, your ability to do things. Because one is not complete. And that's in essence what God is telling uh, Adam. Uh, that's what he's saying in his own mind. Uh, that's what he's going to do. And the simple re- uh, reality is that the way God created us, we both, men and women, lack the totality of the nature of God. And we need each other to be complete. A woman was given certain traits and attributes that men doesn't. He needs to develop that to learn from his mother and to learn from sisters and to learn from uh, other women around and ultimately later on from his wife to develop those traits and characters to be sensitive to them. And the, and the woman likewise, there, there are qualities that be, she being a woman doesn't have because she's not a man. The man has those things. So she gets them from her father and from her brothers and from uncles and, and so forth and grandparents and grandpa and uh, then ultimately again from her husband. In going through this process, they're learning to complement each other instead of opposing each other. And of course, the key in a relationship is when the nature of God is there, when the presence of God is there, when the Spirit of God is there, then there is peace. But when that is gone, there is constant friction. And instead of people, uh, that is men and women, living together in harmony, just like the notes of music, They're fighting one another all the time. They're opposing one another. They're degrading one another, putting down one another, and both are are guilty of doing so. And uh, man is even more guilty and therefore more responsible for doing so. And God had the intention that they complement each other. And so he, in essence, you might say, divided his nature between the two of them. And when you take the two halves, so to speak, and put them together, then and only then they become one and become complete. And that's what he says here. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Otherwise, each one of them is going to be lopsided. Because they're going to have their strengths, they're going to have their weaknesses. And man would develop, apart from women, he's going to develop only in a certain way, in a certain direction. And that's going to be lopsided. And a woman, apart from a man, she's going to develop in a different way. And she's going to be lopsided. A woman doesn't have the need to be feminine unless there is a man around. And a man doesn't have to be in in, in such a mood where he is conducive to the presence of a woman and he's not flirting unless there is a woman around. And he doesn't display those qualities that he would only when there is a woman around. And so that's the way it works. That's the way God created us. And we have to learn one another. And that's why later on in the New Testament uh, you read that Husbands had to dwell with their wives according to knowledge, not according to ignorance, according to the knowledge of the differences between them. And so should the wife. And when they learn that the differences are not to put down each other, but to complement one another, then they find great interest in one another instead of finding faults in one another. And that's what God had in mind, that the two work together, not against one another. 
And so he says, I'm going to make him a helper comparable to him. And out of the ground, verse 19, the Lord God formed every beast of the field. So now he's introducing something that he had done previously. But to fit the story, he's injecting that again at this point. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird in the air, and those were created before even Adam. But now at this point, he brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. In other words, he involved Adam in his creation. Not in the sense of the creation itself or creating, but at least in taking part, once he's alive now, in giving them names, since he's going to have to live with them. And God wanted to share, you might say, with his little boy now, so to speak, with his son, his creation. That was a display of love and respect and approval and giving the credit to Adam, since he gave him brain and mind and all that, that he can think, you know, he can be creative. And so he gives him an opportunity. And God wants us to have this kind of a relationship with him. He doesn't want to do everything for us. He doesn't want to do the thinking for us. He doesn't want to uh, to uh, rule over us with uh, subjugation, to exercise dominion authority over, over our faith. No, he wants to, to, to participate. He wants us to participate with his creation with his actions, with his thinking process, and do things together. This is what makes us a family. And so he's displaying that trait here. And we should do likewise. You know, there are people who want to take everything to themselves and are not capable of allowing others also to blossom and to grow and to share the, uh, the power, the glory, the authority, or the riches, or whatever, that they have. Well, God doesn't function like that. And we have to learn from him and not from the wrong examples. And so that's what he's doing. He brings all the animals to him, and he... Ask him, what do you want to call them? And so he passes them by, so to speak, and he gives them names. Adam gives them names. And whatever the name he gave them, that was it. That was the name of them. And of course, he didn't give them names in Latin. Uh, whatever language he used at the time, and some say Hebrew or whatever other uh, language, we don't know exactly for sure. We're going to know that in the future. Uh, this is... This was the name, basically, of uh, the animals and the birds and whatever God uh, gave him to uh, rename. And so Adam gave names to cattle, that is, to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. And at that time, obviously, all of them were at peace. They did not have the nature of the devouring creatures that we had later on, you know, the devouring animals. Uh, they were not bestial, as that quality came to be uh, uh, applied to them. And so, they were like lambs, like little deer, Bambi, and all that stuff. And uh, it was a, a very serene, peaceful environment. And so, Adam was involved in that creation. And God was extremely excited, just like a father who gives a toy to, uh, to uh, his son or gives him a puppy and asks the son, would you please give a, na uh, a name to the puppy? And so, that was a relationship there. A very uh, family-oriented uh, relationship. Father-son relationship. Beautiful relationship. And so... Adam recognized as he was looking at all that, uh, something missing there for him. And so it says, but for Adam, verse 20, there was not found a helper comparable to him. You see? Now this is what God had in mind. And now God is ba basically voicing out, out loud, you know, the thoughts of Adam. Adam looks around and he says, yeah, but none of them fits me. None of them compliments me. Uh, each one of them has, uh, has their own, but I'm not uh, that category. Uh, so, God is perceiving the thoughts of Adam, and therefore he's recording them here, and that's what we are reading. And so, God proceeds 
to the next step, which he knew to begin with that he was going to do. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. And remember that. God didn't say, well, I created Adam. I'm going to do exactly the same thing for a helper for him. That is, a woman. No, he did not do it. He did it in a different way. He was going to do it out of the body of Adam. And that was the first. And so he says, and the Lord God caused the deep sleep to fall on Adam. And he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Now, it wasn't only a rib out of which God made woman, that is, uh, built woman. And uh, the terminology that he used here, as we shall see in verse 22, is not he formed or it's not he's created, but he built. He used not only the rib, but he used also flesh with it. And Adam testifies to this fact. So verse 22 we read, Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from men, he built, not he made, he built, no, we're talking about women, uh, that is, men generally speak that way. She's well built. And uh, that's, that's what uh, the reality was to begin with. He built her in a very beautiful way. And Adam was a bit different. And he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man. And, and Adam said, now, a man again is going to give a name now to the one that God created for him. First he gave names to all the cattle of the field and the beast of the field and the birds and all that but now God is going to be uh, that is Adam is going to be involved also in giving the woman that God made for him from him from his own body from his own flesh and his own uh, bones so to speak he's going to give her a name also God was not involved in the giving names he let Adam do that and so this is what Adam says when he saw her this is now a bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh not just bone but also flesh she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of men. Now, in English, you're losing again something in the translation. Uh, the word for men in, in Hebrew is ish, and if you want to get the feminine for a noun, for a name in Hebrew, you just add the sound ah at the end. So, ish, isha, with an ah at the end, and you get the feminine form. And that's how you know uh, what is masculine, what is feminine. You add the ah sound at the end, and you have the feminine. And so he called her Isha, because she was taken out of Ish. And he was the Ish, and she was the Isha. And later on, uh, in chapter 3, in verse 20, we shall see that he gave her actually a name. You see, he was a man, but a man is not a name. Uh, a man just testifies to the fact that he's a male. And she was a woman. Uh, that's not a name. You don't call uh, a woman uh, by that name. Hey, woman, come over here. Well, everybody has a name. And so Adam gives to his wife also a name, just like he gave to all the, the beasts of the field and the birds and all that. And in chapter 3 and verse 20, we read that he called her name in verse 20. And Adam called his wife's name, now she is his wife, uh, Eve. Uh, well, Eve in English, again, you're losing an awful lot in the translation. Uh, one thing you always have to be aware, when you read the Bible, uh, remember, there is a lot of uh, uh, information that is lost in the translation so don't assume that you know it all when you read it and go to the translation when you can and if you don't speak the language you've got a concordance, you've got a lexicon and you'll have a much greater knowledge and understanding and Hebrew has tremendous meanings for every name and in the English unfortunately they did not translate that properly and you lost an awful lot in the, in the, in the meantime in the process and so Adam called his wife, not Eve, but Chava. Actually, he called her name Chaya, 
And Chaya means living being. But you see, since also the beast of the field was called Chaya, which means a living being, the, the people that came later on changed the Yod, that was the E sound, Chaya, with a V. So it became Chava. And Chava means, again, a mother of all living. Because Chava is Chai, or Chaim. You heard the word Lechaim, that is to life. And she was life. She became a living being. And so he called her Chava, or Chaya, originally, and the mother of all living. And then we read back in verse 24 of chapter 2. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother. It didn't say, therefore a woman shall leave her father and mother. It says about the man, because the man is the one that initiates the process of the creation of the new family. And, the, and so he's to leave his father and his mother, because up to now he was sort of speaking their bosom. But now that he has his own, they form a new family. And to form a new family, it's good to separate from the father and the mother, and even good to separate physically speaking, geographically speaking, at least a little distance. Otherwise, it creates problems. And uh, that's why we have all these funny stories about the, the, the in-laws. And it shouldn't be that way when there is respect and honor and love. But at least God recognizes that it's not good for them to be together. And they should be separate so there would be an independence there, interdependence between the husband and wife and the children to come. And a new uh, nucleus of a family is being formed that way. And so it says, therefore, the man shall leave his father and mother and be joined. The word joined in Hebrew is glued or, or cleaved in English. Uh, glue means, you know, you take two things and you glue them together. And when, and when you do, they are stuck together, you see. And the pur- purpose of gluing is to put things, two things together. So they're not loose. So they can function together in unison. And that's how the first oneness occurred. And the word uh, glue or, or, or join has an awful lot of meaning there. You see, for example, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 17, we can go to this and read it. And basically what we read there is the abuse of this, of this concept of being glued between a man and a woman to the wrong person. And this, what Paul, this is what Paul has to say about this matter. He says in uh, chapter 6, six of First uh, Corinthians, verses 15 and 17, he says, uh, But he who is joined to the Lord, well, actually, let's, let's uh, begin with verse uh, 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? You see, members, that means they are glued to each other. If they're not, they're not members. You know, you don't have a hand floating uh, in the other room while you're in the kitchen, uh, or eyes somewhere else. And if you do, well, then you're not members. You're not part of the same body. And so at least, spiritually speaking, we have to be in, in spirit and in truth and in life and cooperation and love and affection, all those things. And, and above all, you know, being linked and glued to God himself, to the trunk of the tree. You know, all the branches, he called himself, I'm the trunk, you are the branches. All the branches are, so to speak, glued to the trunk of the tree. They're not separate. They're not floating in the air. Otherwise, how are they going to receive nourishment? How are they going to be a part of a sim? And so it says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? He didn't say only your mind, but he said your body, your very body that houses the spirit. It's one. 
Shall I then t- take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. In other words, he's talking about the abuse of sexuality. When the Corinthians that were accustomed to it used to go to prostitutes or temple uh, prostitutes. And he says he can't do that. So he's explained to them a, sp- a spiritual uh, concept. Or do you not know, verse 16, that he who is joined, that is who is glued, the same word, devic, uh, uh, devic means uh, glue, or to glue, lehadbik, to a harlot is one body with her. For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. And now he's referring back to Genesis where Adam and Eve became one flesh. In other words, through the process of the sexual intercourse, the two are glued to become one flesh. And the purpose is not just a physical one for procreation, but that has a spiritual connotation. They should remember to become one flesh and one body and one uh, mind and one spirit and one doctrine and one faith, so to speak, thinking alike, working together in unison, not against one another. And you see, that's why we have this terminology. When something goes wrong, people become unglued. That's the reason for it. In other words, when sin enters into the picture in between and there is friction, well, people don't want to be together. And that's what he's talking about here. And therefore, he tells them flee immorality. That is, flee sexual immorality. So, the word to glue uh, has a very, very uh, great connotation here, not only in terms of the physical, but also in the spirit. And we read in Jeremiah 13, where, where uh, the God of Israel used that analogy to show how he took Israel to himself, how he became the husband of Israel, and how the two of them became good, became one. Not one flesh, since he was spirit being, and she was not. But she was going to be in the future. And that was the intent, beginning with the flesh, and continuing with the spirit. But that's what he told uh, the people of Israel through Jeremiah. Well, in chapter 13, he tells him in verse 1, Thus says the Lord God to me, Go and get yourself a linen sash, and put it around your waist. But... Do not put it in the water. So I got a sash according to the word of the Lord and put it around my waist. Well, God was going to teach Israel a lesson, was going to give them uh, uh, something to think about in terms of how they were unfaithful to him, though they were once glued while when they got uh, married, so to speak, in Mount Sinai. And then he told them, take it to the Euphrates and stick it in the water. And then he told them to go back later on and get it out of the Euphrates. Now, you know, you're going to ask yourself, well, why the Euphrates? I mean, Jeremiah was in Israel. Why go all the way to the Euphrates? Well, this is the area from which God brought Israel, so to speak, through Abraham, out of that territory. And that was the area of idolatry. And he brought them out of that, and he brought them into the land of Israel, and then into Egypt, and then again, out of that, out of the land of idolatry again, out of Egypt, and then he brought them to Mount Sinai, and then he brought them to the land of glory. And they were husband and wife. They were to be one flesh. But they constantly went back to sin. So the Euphrates is symbolizing the area out of which they were taken. That's why he constantly, repeatedly told them, get out of Babylon, come out of Babylon, come out of sin, come out of this, uh, this uh, way of life that causes people to be unglued because of sin and iniquity. And so he went over there and picked up the, the sash, and it was totally marred, it was totally ruined, because that's what happened when you put a piece of cloth in the water. It gets corrupted. And so, this is uh, what God now tells him. 
uh, in verse 7, uh, he tells them to go and pick it up from the Euphrates. And then I went to the Euphrates and dug and took the sash from the place where I had hidden it, and there was the sash, ruined. And that's how many marriages are. That's how many relationships are. When you allow sin into the picture, when you allow selfishness, when you allow insensitivity, instead of a, a man and a woman being uh, opposites in the sense of complementing one another, they become unglued because of hurts and pain and affliction that they impose on each other or inflict upon each other. And that's the lesson that he was trying to teach his, his people Israel. And so he says that sash was ruined. It was unprofitable for nothing. You couldn't do, you can have a, a relationship under these circumstances. That's what he's telling them. Verse 8, then the word of the Lord came to me saying, thus says the Lord, in this manner I will ruin the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. I'm speaking about his people Israel, uh, that is the southern kingdom of Israel, which is the house of Judah. In specific, Israel was already gone. Uh, verse 10, this evil people who refuse to hear my words, who follow the dictates of their hearts and walk after other gods to serve them and worship them, shall be just like this sash which is profitable for nothing. In other words, since they have chosen a way that caused the relation to come unglued, to be corrupted, to be separated, therefore God is going to totally throw them out, at least temporarily, not on an eternal basis. And so in verse 11 it says, For as the sash clings to the waist, and the word clings here is glued, in other words, God uses the same terminology of Adam and Eve being glued together, and that's how marriage takes place. And that's why we came up with the word of consummation. Husband and wife get married, but if there is no consummation, the marriage has not been really uh, become one, because they did not glue themselves to each other through the sexual consummation, that is, the sexual glue, uh, gluing process. Uh, you know, it's a spiritual uh, understanding of a physical matter. And so he says, for as a sash clings, clings or is glued to the waist of a man, so I have caused the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah to cling, that is to be glued to me, says the Lord, that they may become my people for renown, for praise, and for glory, but they would not hear. And that's exactly what Adam and Eve did. They were glued together, and then when they allowed sin, not only they were unglued, from the relationship with God, with the Creator, they were unglued from each other. And therefore, the beginning of the war between the sexes began at this point. And obviously, to this very day, we're seeing the consequences of it. And instead of being help, helper and uh, helpmate, so to speak, complementing one another, becoming one, being glued together, you've got a lot of problems. And spiritually, it's the same. The people of God are doing the same thing. Every time they allow sin into the, re the relationship they become unglued from God and they have to remove it. And that's what the, the repentance is all about. To remove all the dirt, the spots, the blemishes, so they, became, they can become uh, glued again. And that's what he's talking about here. And the ultimate is uh, Jesus Christ mentioned about his disciples and his last prayer. Uh, the one that is called uh, the real, you know, prayer of the Lord. The Lord's Prayer. And he says... To, uh, to his father, speaking about the wife that he's going to marry in the future, and speaking specific at the time about his own disciples, and those who will become disciples as time went by. He says that the ultimate of working with them, of sanctifying them, 
as it says in verse 19 of chapter 17 of John, and for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth, not by lies, not by deception, not by iniquity, but by the truth. This is what glues us to God. And I do not pray for this alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word to the time that he comes back, and then beyond that, that they all may be one. That means that they all may be glued as you, Father, are in me, and that's what happens when a man and a woman are glued, they are inside each other, literally speaking sexually, and then spiritually and emotionally and psychologically, they ought to learn to do the same. And God does not want people to, uh, uh, to speak very plainly, to, to insert one another only physically and have no commitment to be also emotionally and psychologically and in a marital uh, way to also insert one another and become one, be glued to each other. And that's what he's saying here. That they, in verse 21, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, I in you, that they also may be one in us. And this is the ultimate essence of the Trinity. The Father and the Son and the Bride or the Wife are one. Not a third person that was invented by people who had no knowledge, no understanding. And that was obviously a deception that came from a different spirit and different source. And so this is what God is talking about here in Genesis, and later on amplifying it in the spirit. And they became one. And so we say, that's what Adam is saying, uh, this is now a bone of my bones and a flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man, and the two of them uh, were glued together. In verse 24, uh, therefore, shall a man leave his father and his mother, which is obvious, when you're going to be glued and be joined to his wife, uh, you're going to have to separate from others so they don't come in between, because that's when problems oftentimes occur. Uh, you, you remember uh, the story of uh, I, uh, that is uh, Isaac. When Isaac got married, you don't see him anymore living with his father. His father lived in a different town, and Isaac was wandering here and there. You don't see in the story the presence of Abraham anymore there. Because Abraham went his way, Isaac went his way. They were still in the same land, nearby, visiting each other. But they were creating a new nucleus of a family. And even Abraham was doing it, because after the death of Sarah, Abraham remarried. And so they needed to be separate. And that is very healthy. And so, uh, we read, uh, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and be joined, that is, be glued to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is one flesh. Some people say, well, uh, we believe in the Trinity. There is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But it's a mystery. We don't know how it works. No, there is no mystery. When a husband and wife become one, there is no mystery there. It's simple. That's the simplicity in Christ. And when the Father and the Son and the Bride become one, there is no mystery there. It's very simple. God explains all those things. When you see a mystery that cannot be explained, it generally is a work of darkness. When God gives us mysteries, he explains those things in a very simple way. And of course, he does it to the wise, not to the unwise. And so we read that they became one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. And in essence, they were in a state of innocence. You see, in a state of innocence, people don't know the difference between right and wrong. They don't know the difference between good and evil. They don't have... Uh, evil thoughts in their minds, they're just not aware of it, like little children, totally innocent, totally pure, totally clean, and this is the state of mind they were. He's not talking only about the, the flesh, that they were not ashamed you know, of, of their flesh, and obviously they were not at that point, because their mind was clean. It's only when the mind is polluted, 
that then man begins to look upon his body as something to be ashamed of. And uh, in the era where the King James was written, uh, the people uh, that were involved in the translation were all Puritans and Victorians, and their mind was anything but clean and pure, and therefore they had to change everything in the Bible that had to do it in their own language with bodily function, with sexual functions, and give it uh, other words, you know, they use the euphemisms there. And God doesn't function like that. And so they use the word nakedness in the Bible every time when they, when they came across uh, uh, that which describes really the pubic region, uh, the, the, uh, you know, the physical area of sexuality of both men and women. They just called it nakedness because they couldn't bring themselves to speak the truth. Well, when darkness enters into the mind, that's what happens. But here, Adam and Eve were pure and innocent and clean. And there was no such a thing of uh, guilt feeling and shame and uh, all the embarrassing feelings that come uh, with uh, deception and ignorance and blindness. And God is describing another uh, occasion, which is very interesting. Let's go to that one in the book of Isaiah, chapter 7. And specifically, he's talking about uh, someone that was born to the prophet Isaiah, that he were, and, and that, uh, that son, which was a literal son, some people think it's only futuristic or prophetic, no, that was a literal, literal son of Isaiah. And he had, uh, he, he had become a symbol of something to happen in the future. And this is what we read in chapter uh, 7, where God sends Isaiah to the people of Judah to give them uh, this analogy of what he's doing and what he's going to do in the future. And the sons of Isaiah were to become symbols of this future reality. And so it says in verse 14 in chapter 7, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, speaking to the king of Judah, King Ahaz. Behold, in English it says a virgin, which is a total mistranslation. It's not a virgin. People have to be honest in translation. It is a maiden, Alma in Hebrew. Now granted, when there is morality in the land, the virgin, that is, there the, will be a maiden, and the maiden will be a virgin. And Alma will generally refer to a virgin, you see. But Isaiah was not necessarily living in, a, in an age of uh, high morality. Uh, you read the chapters before that, and you can see it very clearly. It was a people's unclean lips, very corrupt in many ways. But in either case, he's, here he's speaking about his own wife, who was still a maiden. She was still young, a young woman. And a maiden can apply even to a married woman when she's still just uh, entering the marriage uh, process. And so he says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin that is the Alma shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Immanuel, that is God with us. And then he continues about this son. Curds and honey, that is cheese, uh, he shall eat that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. You see, he's connecting uh, physical things that he eats. And so as he matures, he's going to come to the point where he's going to know the difference between good and evil. But not in the beginning of life, where he's very innocent. And so he continues in verse 16. For the child shall know to refuse evil and choose the good. That is, uh, verse 16 again. For before the child shall know to refuse evil and choose the good. Before it comes to the state of mind when he knows guilt, when he knows shame, when, when he knows what Adam and Eve knew after they committed the iniquity and the sin that they did, and poison entered into their mind, and then everything was shameful at that time. So God says, before that little child reaches that state of mind, which every child reaches that state of mind, uh, sometimes at two, three, four, and uh, older, depending, 
He says, before that happens to that child, which was a literal child, which was a child, the son of the prophet himself, Isaiah, that the land that you dread will be forsaken for both, by both her kings, that is, the king of Judah and the king of Israel. So it was a literal reality. A son, which was to symbolize a future event in the person of Mary and the son that was born. And so, uh, in the so-called Christian world, they say, well, it's a virgin. No, it does not say. The Jews says, no, it does not say. And they're correct. It's a maiden. And maiden, yes, under the proper circumstances, will be virgin. But not necessarily so when uh, people are not as moral as they should be. So, that's why the reason, uh, that's the reason why God used the word here, virgin. Uh, that is, Alma, maiden, and not virgin, because she was the wife of the prophet. And uh, virgins don't bear children if they're physical. But in the case of Mary, there was something else. So she was sort of a type and anti-type, uh, the wife of Isaiah, to the one to come later on. And God used it uh, for his own son. And so Adam and Eve were in that state of mind. Totally pure, clean, didn't know the difference between right and wrong, good and evil, no guilt, no shame. But later on, that came. And so at this point it says, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, just like two sweet little children. And they're totally unaware of that, unaware of shame and guilt and all that. It's not that they're unaware of the fact that they had no clothes on. And we're not ashamed. And so now we begin a new story in chapter 3. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. So he's speaking about the physical creature, serpent, that was obviously being used by spiritual counterpart of that. As you study the, the, the subject of angels, you realize that all angels are basically uh, uh, spiritual uh, type of the prototype that came later on, which were the animals. And so that's why uh, the idol worship centered around the worshiping of animals, you know, like in Egypt, they worship the beetle, the snake, the, the, the cattle, the ox, everything else, because that's basically what angels were. And uh, in Ezekiel, you read the description of, of some of the, of the cherubim that had the, the one head of an eagle, one head of an ox, one head of, uh, of a lion, and then one head of a man. And then uh, in Revelation you read about every beast, every uh, creature, you know, every uh, fowl, bird, you know, is going to be thrown to the lake of fire. Because speaking about, he's speaking about angels, fallen angels that became demons. And so, uh, here it is, Satan, as we find later on at this point we don't know, is using his physical counterpart, a serpent that was at this point walking, not crawling, that came later. And so it says, and the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field. You know, they're very shrewd. You know, they had to uh, go this way, go that way, hide and, uh, and protect themselves. So the, this physical creature uh, is not speaking only about the, the spiritual, but it's speaking about both. And that's the way it is to be understood. Both of them, the physical one, was the most shrewd of all the animals that got created. And the spiritual one was the most shrewd and the most subtle and the most wide of all the other angelic beings in the form of animals that God had created. So sort of a double meaning there. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Which is a very, uh, you might say, a sarcastic question. Sort of putting doubt in her mind. And remember, she's at a point where she's innocent. You know, she, she doesn't realize where he's coming from. She's not able to read uh, between the lines. And know what he's up to. Because she doesn't have that kind of a mind. And uh, he's trying to deceive her. And the woman said, I uh, noticed he didn't come to the man. The man knew better. He came to the woman. And that became a pattern later on. 
And even the, the churches later on became known as women. And the fallen churches became known as women. And even Judah and Israel became known as women. And the, the false one called Jezebel or uh, other names in Revelation 17. Uh, these are spiritual analogies. And they, were, and they all fall, so to speak. You know, that was a weakness that a woman has. And she needed the men to compliment her, but he was not around for different reasons. And so he came to the woman. Uh, and the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but, or the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God had said, You shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Well, we don't know whether God said, Don't touch it. He just said, Don't eat it. But she added that, Don't even touch it. Uh, you know, if you're not tempted, it's no big deal to touch it and look at it. And, uh, but if you are, keep away from it. Flee temptation, so to speak. And so, verse 7, uh, verse 4, that is, uh, Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. And the serpent, as time goes by, you get more and more information about it. In Numbers 21, verse 8, for example, speaking about the, the, the brass serpent that Moses was commanded by God to, uh, to form and uh, raise it up. So when all those Israelites who were rebellious, who were bitten by snakes that God sent against them, in other words, there is also spiritual connotation there. When man rebels against God, God allows Satan, who is a serpent, to come at man. And that's what happened there physically speaking. When men rebelled against God, God sent the serpents to bite them. And they were dying from it. And so uh, Aaron went uh, and uh, tried to uh, come in between. And uh, God told Moses to uh, create that, that serpent and, and lift it up. And everybody who looks at it, uh, will, uh, in other words, all their sins will come upon that snake. That's what it meant to look upon it. And then later on, that was used spiritually for Christ himself, who told his people, as Moses lifted up the snake, which symbolized and epitomized sin and iniquity and transgression and the wickedness that was in the heart of men, you see, when everything is placed upon him, and that's the reason also, not only for the sacrifice of the Passover, but also for the sacrifice of the Day of Atonement. All the sins of humanity until the day of Christ, and after that, and all those who will be resurrected in the second resurrection will have to be placed on the head of the one ultimately responsible for all the sins of humanity. That is his part in it, and that's what he's talking about here. And so when they looked upon the snake and in terms of faith, believed and accepted, I'm sure there was explanation what it was all about, then their sins will be taken away and placed on the head of the serpent, and they came back to life, so to speak, or were healed. And Matthew uh, 5, 7, uh, uh, Christ is using this analogy also. If somebody asks for bread, will, will uh, his father give him a serpent? In other words, if you ask for the truth, if you ask for the presence of God, will God you know, turn you over to Satan? No, he's not going to do it. So he's using again there in terms of physical and spiritual analogy. And uh, as I mentioned before, that uh, in John 3, 14, uh, Jesus Christ said, As Moses lifted up the serpent... In Revelation 12:9, we read about uh, the casting of the serpent, who was the dragon, who was Satan, the devil. In other words, you have a full understanding there of who that person was and how he looked like. In Isaiah 27:1, we read, "In that day, God is going to destroy the great serpent," and this is what the serpent was all about. In Isaiah 14:28, he's described as a cherub, but there is no physical description of him. But we know that he was in the form of a dragon, the form of a serpent. And so he appears to her, and uh, uh, she is not too much uh, 
well, you might say, uh, amazed about that fact that a serpent talks to her, he has words in his mouth. Uh, well, she saw serpents around all the time. She saw animals and all that, and, well, this one talks. And she didn't realize Satan is the one using that physical serpent that she saw around, of which she was not afraid before that. Uh, maybe she never uh, encountered that, and maybe she thought, well, maybe animals speak too. Uh, in other words, she was still in an innocent state of mind, didn't know everything. Adam knew better, but he was not around for uh, who knows what reason. And so the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of uh, the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God said, that is, God commanded, he didn't say, he commanded, don't eat from it, because if you do, in the day that you do, you're going to die. And so now Satan is going to use that against her, because she may think that as, at the moment that you eat it, you're really going to drop dead. And Satan knew what it really meant, that God wasn't talking about an immediate, because many sins don't have an immediate result. But spiritually speaking, you're, you're as good as dead when you, when you commit that sin or iniquity or transgression. And so he's, he's going to capitalize on that, and he says in verse 7, then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. In other words, he was talking about something, she was thinking about something else. She was thinking about immediately dropping dead. He knew what God was talking about. For God knows that in the day, that is, at the moment that you eat, again, it's a process of time. In the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Not that you will be spirit being, divine being. No, you're going to be able to know the difference between good and evil because up to now like little children they didn't know which is right which is wrong not experiencing evil they don't know the difference they don't know what what is good and what is bad if you've experienced only good like little children how would they know what is bad and so they do a lot of bad things like you know touching the, the, the hot oven and then they learn oh that's bad not a good idea that's how the awareness of that comes to their mind gradually and then after that spiritually uh, the spirit uh, develops in them the perceived uh, ethereal concepts also, uh, abstract concepts, first with the physical things and then the, the things of the mind. And that's what he told her, he was deceiving her. In other words, Satan always uses the truth. You see, he's a master of counterfeit. Try to get it as close as possible to the truth and then stick something in it that is a lie and that's how you deceive people. You know, you, we don't deceive people by giving them a $3 bill. Nobody's going to fall for it. But he gave them a dollar bill that looks just exactly as a real one. That's how people fall for it. They're not experts, and she was not an expert at that. And God demands that we become experts, so we are not ignorant of the, of the devices of Satan, as uh, Paul would put it. At this point, we're going to stop. And again, this is Mordecai Joseph, saying greetings to all of God's people. The preceding message was taken from the World Wide Website at address www.biblestudy.org. This site is sponsored by Barnabas Ministries. Bible study. You have questions? The Bible has answers.